Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, good friends. And on this Friday, September 22nd, around 830 in the morning in our nation's capital, welcome to this week's Reporters Roundtable on the Bill Press Pod. (laughs) Plenty to talk about this week on several fronts. If at first you don't succeed, try, try, try again. Well, that may work for everybody, but it doesn't work for Kevin McCarthy, who keeps trying, trying, trying to get a funding bill passed, but keeps getting blocked by a handful of fellow Republicans, and now they've given up and gone home for the weekend. Meanwhile, Attorney General Merrick Garland held his own against a hostile House Oversight Committee. Ukraine President Zelensky came to town and got a cold shoulder from House Republicans. Senators were given permission to wear shorts and sweatshirts on the Senate floor, at least one of them. And Donald Trump said, hey, I didn't go to the first debate and I'm not going to the second one either. Uh, That's just part of what we want to talk about this morning. So let's try to put it all in perspective with today's panel. David Jackson, National Political Correspondent for USA Today. David, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me, Bill. Okay, Sadiq Reddy, Managing Editor of Politico, and a welcome back to you, Sadiq, as well. Hi, Bill. How are you? And another veteran. <laughs> Good to see John Bennett, who's the Editor-in-Large and Analyst Columnist for CQ Roll Call and writer of CQ's Afternoon Briefing. Hello, John. Good morning, Bill. All right, so John, uh, (laughs) they're going home for the weekend, but alarm bells are going off all over Washington. Uh, It took 15 tries for Kevin McCarthy to be elected speaker. Is it going to take 15 tries to get a budget or a funding bill passed? It may take at least uh, that many tries. It may take take that many tries not to pass the once-considered must-pass defense appropriations bill, it might take 15 tries to pass the rule under which they'll debate it and, you know, do amendments and and the usual uh, on the House floor, which, you know, I covered defense for over a decade. And I mean, this is this is unheard of. The defense uh, National Defense uh, Authorization Act, the NDAA, has has been signed into law for 62 consecutive years. Um, and the defense appropriates bill, um, the spending bill that that you know the the author the authorization bill okay's the money and then the the appropriators write the checks you know this is must pass stuff usually in Washington even uh, especially with Republicans they were long the party of national security so when a Republican controlled House is struggling to pass defense bills um, that that this is unprecedented territory. And, you know, I, I became on, on the defense beat, uh, you know, covering it on the on Capitol Hill. You know, I would always scoff at, at my other at my reporter colleagues and say, oh, they'll figure out they'll pass the NDAA. Could you I, I would say, like, could you guys start stop writing that the streak is in jeopardy? Um, well, this year I would not give that advice because I'm not sure what can pass the House bill. 
Mm-hmm. Sudeep, um, it does raise the question of who's in charge or who's running the house. Let me. Let, I want to get your response to that, but let's let me first play a little, uh, uh, with the help of our producer Jay Feldman, a little montage of Kevin McCarthy, who does, he, I must admit sounds pretty thrown by this whole sequence of events. I don't understand why anybody votes against bringing the idea and having the debate. This is a whole new concept of individuals that just want to burn the whole place down. It, it doesn't work. It's a good thing I love a challenge. We're not September 30th yet, but the one thing I'll tell everybody, I've never seen anybody win a shutdown. If you're not willing to pass appropriation bills and you're not willing to pass a continuing resolution to allow you to pass the rest of appropriation bills and you don't want an omnibus, I don't quite know what you want hard to pass everything in this place. We started out on a five-seat majority. I got one member who's now resigned. We got a couple members who are out as well. But you know what? This country is too great and too big to give up, and I'm never going to give up. Well, <laughs> Sudeep doesn't sound like a guy you can have a lot of confidence in. Well, he's also creating some Joe Biden uh, ads here with, yes, he does have a conference that wants to burn the place down. Yeah. He has people who... Uh, yeah. are not looking to govern. He's got Matt Gates, who is looking to embarrass Kevin McCarthy. There's a reason we ended up with 15 votes uh, to get to a Kevin McCarthy speakership earlier this year. And I think we could all see this train wreck coming right now to this point. I think the, the one thing we don't know for sure is how much does Matt Gates want to get uh, get famous here and just inflict as much pain as possible over the next week and then relent and how much does he really want the shutdown? There are a number of, of paths that are emerging uh, that involve both uh, avoiding the shutdown and embarrassing Kevin McCarthy. And so uh, it's possible those emerge as well. Right. Uh, so, so, David, um, here's a quick clip from the Democratic leader, um, Hakeem Jeffries, on the state of affairs this week. 2018 into 19, same thing. They shut the government down. For 35 days, by the way, when the government shutdown began, Donald Trump was president. Republicans controlled the House and the Senate in December of 2018. They shut themselves down. And why are we going down this road again? We're not paying a ransom note so you can jam your extreme ideology down the throats of the American people and hurt everyday Americans. We never have and we never will. So, David, doesn't history tell us that these shutdowns always work against the party that shuts the government down? Well, of course, yeah. I mean, it, look at what it did to Newt Gingrich and the Republicans in the mid-'90s. It's, uh, I mean, the Democrats should be having it. Politically, the Democrats should be having a field day because the Republicans are just self-immolating in front of us. Um, I've been covering the presidential election on this, so I've got a sideways glance. But I know, I yeah. suspect that one of Matt Gates's goals here is to try to get support from Donald Trump for his governor's run. In 2020, and I think that's dictating. I think Gates's ambitions are dictating a lot of his strategy here, and it's it's as Sadiq said, it's going to be interesting to see how far he wants to go with this. Well, that's interesting, right? Because Trump this week basically encouraged the Republicans to continue uh, blocking McCarthy and shutting it down. Exactly, and that's a, that's another thing that's going on is that Trump seems to think that a government shutdown will somehow uh, stop these investigations of him, which of course is ridiculous because you know, federal criminal. The judicial system will go on. It's an essential service, so it's going to go on whether there's a shutdown or not. And besides, two of the cases against Trump are state cases, but he seems to think that a shutdown will help him legally, and there are some members in the House who seem to agree with that. Yeah. So, John, um, 
is is it possible uh, McCarthy doesn't have enough Republican votes? Is it possible that he can pull in Democrat? You know, Democrat are Democrats? Do you think willing to save his butt on this at any point? Well, that's that's the question, and and the definition of save his butt. Um, I, the Democrats, I, I do get the sense uh, from talking to members and, and our great CQ Roll Call's great budget team uh, was just all over this all week. And from from their reporting as well, they're willing to work with McCarthy to keep the government open. Um, they're willing to work with McCarthy, you know, to pass not this defense appropriations bill or the NDAA or some of these other spending bills. But but, you know, if revised spending bills that didn't have some of these really, you know, far right, um, as Democrats would say, poison pill uh, provisions. Sure. The, especially moderate Democrats will, will vote with uh, moderate Republicans. So there's there there are 218. I believe the, the number right now is 217, the whole number of the House. So there are 217 votes to pass legislation. Now, they'll work with them to keep the government open. But what about to keep the speaker's gavel. That's a different question. Uh-huh. Um, they don't have to vote for McCarthy on the floor um, or, you know, a Steve Scalise or Patrick McHenry, these other names that pop up as alternatives to McCarthy. They could vote present and and help McCarthy um, retain his gavel. But um, McCarthy might have shot himself in the foot when it comes to work, Democrats bailing him out, saving his behind uh, as far as the gavel goes, because he launched the formal impeachment inquiry uh, into uh, President Biden, his business dealings, his son's business dealings. Um, so Democrats are are peeved right now at, <laughs> yeah. at Kevin McCarthy. So they don't really have a lot of incentive to save his behind as far as staying speaker. Um, and, you know, you know, a, a lot of what we cover uh, in Washington these days are unforced errors. And that could come that could really come back to haunt Kevin McCarthy. Uh, in fact, Sudeep, um, the Democratic whip, Catherine Clark uh, from Massachusetts, uh, I believe I read that <laughs> in your newsletter this morning, Sudeep, on Politico, uh, said yesterday, um, yeah, we're willing to talk, but one price would be that they'd have to pay is to drop the Biden impeachment. That's that's right. Uh, she It was in our, our playbook, uh, deep dive and in playbook this morning, and uh, in, in really outlining that she thinks that uh, that there's a deal here between Biden and McCarthy that McCarthy can uphold, but uh, on support from Ukraine, on disaster aid, on uh, ending the impeachment inquiry, on the Hunter Biden issues, all of this. Um, it, there's a path here, but uh, does Kevin McCarthy care enough about his job uh, to to open the door to a, to a motion to vacate? Um, because that's what it would entail, but. Uh, that would open it. And if he really wants to go forward with Democratic votes, he can do that and maintain his job through the end of 2024. So uh, this is going to be a real test of what Kevin McCarthy stands for. Uh, So, David, uh, looking at it from a presidential point of view, uh, the presidential implications on the presidential campaign trail, um, another thing happened yesterday. President Zelensky from Ukraine came to Washington he had asked to speak to a joint session of Congress. Kevin McCarthy turned him down. Have we seen a president snub an ally like that before? No. And go ahead. No. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely not. Now, of course, I guess McCarthy, one of his excuses was Zelensky's already addressed Congress. So 
it would it would it would also have been unusual for you know for Zelensky to have had a second address to a full. But but under the circumstances, it was it's absurd that McCarthy would turn him down. And in fact, I think the whole thing is absurd. The idea that somehow uh, Ukraine is a drain and a threat to draw us into some kind of world war, and it all stems back to Trump. Uh, he doesn't uh, like Ukraine because Ukraine wouldn't do his bidding during the 2000 election and investigate Biden and t- t- during the 2020 election. And uh, he's, you know, as we all know, he has a, a, a weird affinity for Vladimir Putin. So as far as he's concerned, Ukraine's the bad guy and all of the Republicans or most of the Republicans seem to be following suit. Do you think that the Ukraine funding uh, is a threat at risk, John, uh, in, in, in these negotiations or in this? This you know mess in this house. Yeah, I, I think it is. I mean, are there enough votes to cut it off? Is what my question is. Really, I don't think there are enough votes to completely cut it off, um, especially in the Senate. I mean, there's wide support in the Senate, maybe not for the you know the level uh, that that the White House and President Biden wants, but um, you know there was a feeling coming out of of the Senate meeting yesterday uh, with President Zelensky that that he does still have needs. Um, you know, for instance, they fire a lot of, of rounds. They fire a lot of ammunition and, and, and he's always in need. That's just one thing. Um, he wants the F 16s and there's a feeling in the Senate that, that, that he does need more and, and that we should help. And we saw this week, excuse me, we saw this week, president Biden at the United Nations general assembly shifted, um, you know, at least his his message about Ukraine to, you know, we can't allow any country to just willy nilly start invading other countries and grabbing territory. And and that's a and and, and we have to stand by our allies because, we you know, you can't have Vladimir Putin, you know, taking whatever country he wants in Europe. We saw that once upon a time uh, with uh, with Adolf Hitler and 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 Nazi Germany. So the president kind of turning up the heat a little bit with his message and that that was also Zelensky's message in the old Senate chamber yesterday. And and senators of both parties came out. Uh, a lot of Republicans in the Senate, they're skeptical how the weapons are being used, how the money's being spent. They won't they won't stricter oversight of that. And that is their job. Um, but, you know, the, in the Senate, they don't necessarily want to cut off the spigot. Maybe they just want to want to uh, slow down the pace of the aid, give a little less and have some some better insight into how it's being used. But on the House side, um, I think conservatives have enough sway right now um, that the administration's requests could could come down significantly in whatever funding package at the end of the year might get out of the House. Yeah. Sudeep, I must say, I find it uh, almost impossible to believe that the party of Ronald Reagan, members of the party of Ronald Reagan, are actually siding with Vladimir Putin in Ukraine. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's it's remarkable that the party of Ronald Reagan has ended up as the party of Donald Trump, and here we are. That's uh, true. In, that in too. This, in this moment, this is this is the consequence of uh, of a party being completely transformed and uh, and turned into something completely different. The 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 re- remarkable challenge here is that. Uh, there is war fatigue in America uh, in a war in which not a single soldier has has gone into the battlefield. And that uh, kind of shows where we are uh, as a result of the party of uh, George W. Bush and uh, what legacy he has left about 
spending American dollars on something like this. Uh, obviously, uh, this is a, a pretty pivotal moment for uh, for Ukraine and, and Zelensky. He's actually losing some support in Europe as well, which is where the support needs to come. Uh, and he's he's got to figure out a, a, a plan here in, in case the we get to 2024 and a lot of the funding starts disappearing. So um, it's a it, it's remarkable that Ukraine is now following yet again American politics to figure out its future. Yeah, and before we leave the Hill, uh, David, another big hearing this week. Attorney General Merrick Garland hauled in front of the House Judiciary Committee uh, and uh, uh, showing he got pretty angry, showing some fire and some backbone. Maybe we didn't realize we'd never seen before in Merrick Garland. Here's a quick clip of his response to. Uh, one question about the role of the Justice Department. I am not the president's lawyer. I am not Congress's prosecutor. The Justice Department works for the American people. Our job is to follow the facts and the law. All of us recognize that with this work comes public scrutiny, criticism, and legitimate oversight. But singling out individual career public servants who are just doing their jobs is dangerous particularly at a time of increased threats to the safety of public servants and their families. We will not be intimidated, and we will not back down from defending our democracy. So he was pressed, David, on uh, uh, what they're doing about uh, the investigation of Hunter Biden, the uh, the uh, charges against Donald Trump, but Merrick Garland held his own, huh? Oh, very much so. I think it I feel bad for him. You know, he had one of the best judicial slots in the country, you know, running the field score in D.C., and he yeah, gave right. it up to jump into this mess. But, um, you know, I, I I covered him back in the 90s when he worked for Janet Reno, and uh, he's he's one of the most intelligent people I've ever dealt with, and he's he's got spine, and he's in a tough spot. The, the, but the fact is that uh, there's that's absolutely there's just absolutely no evidence that the Justice Department's going after Trump for political reasons because – you know, we've you've had a grand jury review these both of these cases, and these indictments are full of facts that are, are that are very troubling and could lead to a conviction of Trump, and that's just all there is to it. So they can complain all they want to, but you know, the facts are the facts. Uh, and John Bennett, maybe you can explain this for us. The just the judici- House Judiciary, Jim Jordan and the others, are attacking Merrick Garland for appointing David Weiss as special counsel to look into Hunter Biden, when in fact, (laughs) they're the ones who ask him to appoint David Weiss as special counsel. Hello. (laughs) You know, it was it was pretty amazing. I was on the Hill uh, while that hearing was going on. And, you know, we were chasing uh, the all the the funding drama, the shutdown drama. I didn't see a second of the hearing. I got home and and flipped on CNN and I was like, oh, yeah, that happened today, too. Um, It's just just amazing how busy it can get. But, you know, this is this is a tactic right out of Donald Trump's playbook that House Republicans have learned. And um, I I think it it, it's somewhat effective. I'll put it that way, where you um, you just kind of blame the other guy for something that you did or something (laughs) that you're doing. Or if you're doing something, you just say the other side's doing it. And, um, you know, that's that's Trump 101. And, you know, there's a group in the House that they've they've studied his playbook and and they run it every day. Yeah, indeed. 
All right, Sudeep, I will let you uh, tee off on the big—we've avoided it so far— The by far the biggest issue of the week is the dress code in the United States Senate. <laughs> Chuck Schumer single-handedly relaxing the dress code and letting John Fetterman wear shorts and a sweatshirt. Is this going to stick, and how's it going over? This is the top issue on the minds of all Americans. There you go. Allowed to wear shorts. <laughs> uh, I've, I've loved see, watching, all, seeing all the slideshows this week of all sorts of other senators showing up in shorts and flip flops, including a number of Republicans, uh, just uh, just to vote. Uh, it kind of shows how silly this issue is and how much of a of a distraction it is. Um, this is is helping. Uh, John Fetterman come up with lines of attack against everybody else more than anything. Um, and whether it, uh, it actually has any legs, so to speak, we'll see. Um, we, we've got, uh, we've got this uh, unusual um, pattern where now we have lawmakers creating images in our heads that we really do not need uh, a Senator from Maine in a bikini um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, other thoughts. We just really don't need to to see any of that. I feel like we're in the the on the cusp of the hoodie generation uh, entering <laughs> the Senate anyway. So this this may not be the worst uh, the worst transition to make at this moment. Well, John Bennett, I imagine when you go to the floor, as you said, you were there yesterday. You wear a coat and tie. I do, and I did yesterday. Uh, that's right. I always wear a coat and tie. I. Went and my brain went immediately to I don't know 2000, 2011, 2012. Uh, the Senate uh, was working a Friday. That alone was breaking news, and um, I went I went to cover uh, you know what they were doing, and uh, I wore a very casual blazer and uh, no tie, open collar, and I was talking to John McCain, the late senator. And he was mid-answer, and he stopped, and he looked me up and down, and he said, "He said, what are you doing? This is the United States Senate. You should wear a tie. Whoa. And, yeah. you know, when whenever I leave and I don't have a tie on, I think about Senator McCain. And, you know, that was, that was a, a, a pretty stark moment, and I always go back in and grab one. Um, so for me, uh, you know, this was this – was, this was interesting. And, I, you know, you saw even Democrats like Dick Durbin, mm -hmm. who's uh, Chuck Schumer's uh, top deputy. He's the, the Democratic whip. Even he was critical of the dress code change this week. So, you know, there's some motions out there some or, or, or senators talking about some motions uh, that they might have to vote on uh, to, to put the old dress code back in place. Or maybe they'll meet in the middle. I mean, maybe we're talking about, you know, country club casual where you know it's a golf shirt and a and a blazer at least something like that or no jeans. We'll see where this ends up. I don't think we've heard the last of this, and you know senators have to have something to talk about and vote on uh, at the end of the year while they're uh, while, while they're negotiating all this stuff behind closed doors. The rest of the Senate has to do something. I will just say that uh, Tommy Tuberville, who's of course been in the news. Um, for his hold on military promotions, um, he told reporters he may show up. He's a former college football coach. He said he may show up in his coach outfit. Um, and I tweeted that that only works if he wears the headset and carries a plate, <laughs> and, and carries a play chart in front of his face. And I will 
I will go sit in the gallery to watch that. <laughs> David, uh, all the years that you and I um, showed up together at the White House briefings, I never saw you without a jacket and tie. Oh, I know. Yeah, I just, uh, yeah, I just, I guess I'm just a traditionalist. Um, I just don't. Does he does he have to wear the cargo shorts? I guess those are the ones that I just really wonder about. But you know, everybody's got their deal. I will point out one thing though. One of the people who are upset about this is Joe Manchin, who I understand is going to yeah. make a proposal to change the policy. And Joe Manchin's not the, not the guy that Democrats want to alienate at this point because they're kind of worried mm-hmm. about his potential third party presidential bid. So I, I just think Manchin's involvement in this is is of interest. Yeah. Uh, no, for the record, I just weigh in and say, hey, you ran for the job. Part of the job is to dress out of respect for the Senate, the institution, even if you don't respect some of your other members. Uh, yeah, it's no big deal. Put on a suit and tie like I did in high school every day. So there you go. Uh, hey, here we go. Great start, but we haven't even touched the national political scene with the second big debate coming up next week. So let's take a quick break and then we'll dump in, uh, dr- dive into uh, national politics here on the Bill Press Pod with today's panel. Uh, John Bennett, Sadiq Reddy and David Jackson. And today we give a shout out to uh, my brothers and sisters in SAG-AFTRA, who, who, with the Writers Guild, have been on strike now since May 2nd against the big Hollywood studios. That's 144 days. But it looks like they're getting close to a deal with the studios. They're now working around the clock. Uh, but we So we congratulate the members of the Writers Guild and SAG-AFTRA for uh, walking the line and for holding the line uh, in their quest for a bigger slice of the pie for writers and producers. Check out the web, their website at sagaftra.org to find out more about what this strike is all about and what they're talking about in terms of a resolution. That's sagaftra.org. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. 
We're back with today's panel. John Bennett joining us here on the Politica Reporters Roundtable. Uh, John Bennett from CQ Roll Call. Sadiq Reddy from Politico. David Jackson from USA Today. So, David, uh, the uh, second big Republican debate next week at the Reagan Library. And again, Donald Trump, a big no-show. Does anybody care? Does it make any difference? Well, uh, uh, Trump is certainly trying to make nobody care. Uh, This Obviously, he's doing everything he can to minimize the debate. He's going to be going to Detroit to talk to union members and try to get involved in that auto strike up there. But yeah, that's a... I confess there's a real B-team approach to this whole thing, and it really really plays into his plan to be the inevitable nominee. You know, I thought it was strange that the Republicans even scheduled this debate at the Ronald Reagan Library, because you remember a couple of years ago, they put on a speaker series about the future of the Republican Party, and they invited every potential presidential candidate except Donald Trump. And there's also, of course, the... uh, the publisher of the Washington Post was on the board of the Reagan trustee, Billy, and of course, and Trump had problems with mm-hmm. the Post. So mm-hmm. I thought it was a strange venue for this kind of debate. If they thought they were going to attract uh, Donald Trump, I don't think there was any way he would he would go and to any event at the Ronald Reagan Library at this point. But yeah, you're right. It's just uh, I don't I, I don't sense a lot of excitement among the Republicans about this debate, and there's an increased feeling that this is a one person race, and um, this debate may not may not be a very big news event. Uh, one thing, yeah, by, uh, Donald Trump has made no um, doubt about the fact that he's got a real beef with the Reagan Library uh, ever since that uh, uh, speech, that series of speeches you mentioned. Uh, so unlikely he would show up. But Sudeep, uh, people are saying that this debate may serve a purpose in narrowing the field uh, so that there are not quite so many candidates trying to topple Donald Trump. Do we see that happening? Well, we... we uh look like we have a chance of going from eight down to six, but this field is still, uh, we're still at a point where obviously Ron DeSantis is kind of crumbling in his, uh, in his uh, rankings and Vivek Ramaswamy is taking up a lot of the, uh, the attention and Nikki Haley as well. I guess the question here is at what point do Chris Christie and Mike Pence and Tim Scott recognize they're not really going anywhere in the polls? Um, uh, one of them is clearly uh, a potential vice presidential candidate in Tim Scott. Uh, Mike Pence is obviously uh, not, and he is uh, running to for a legacy reason. And Chris Christie just seems to be having fun uh, trying to take on Donald Trump. So uh, all of them in, in some way make an interesting, lively field. Um, at, at least uh, Pence and uh, Christie bring some contrast here. Um, so I don't anticipate they're necessarily going to drop out before the end of the fall, but, uh, they, they, uh, obviously aren't going anywhere. Well, uh, John Bennett, you live in Washington, like I do. In fact, I think all of us do, but I, I've been, was really struck watching the news lately with all these ads for Doug Burgum, uh, <laughs> governor of North Dakota, who is, um, running for president, obviously. And running ads against Joe Biden, and I'm—I was wondering <laughs> what the hell is that all about. Then I realized this is really his effort to try to get in that second, stay in that second debate, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You, you've got to uh, do certain <laughs> things and, and hit, you know, certain criteria and um, poll you know, numbers. If, poll and, numbers for the big one, yeah, right. right. And so, you know, if you're polling in the uh, in the low single digits at this point. <laughs> And you've got some cash laying around. 
I, you know, I guess why not spend it? Why not just just go for broke and, you know, to football uh, analogies, just keep throwing it in the end zone and see if you can get a touchdown. Um, you know, he had a couple moments in, in earlier debate in the earlier debate, um, but, you know, he hasn't really gained any traction. Yeah. And I think I saw he's spending eight million dollars on this series of ads, hoping to pop his uh, his poll numbers up um, before we move on. David, uh, Sudeep mentioned uh, Ron DeSantis sort of crumbling. Um, again, I saw a couple of headlines this morning in stories about Ron DeSantis. Uh, one phrase was Republicans waiting for him to drop out and it was Ron DeSantis fighting gravity. <laughs> uh, but, is it really that bad around the country? I mean, that's another interesting phenomenon about this race is you'll, um, the Trump people are spreading rumors about DeSantis and some of their other opponents every day. And lo and behold, some of these rumors actually, uh, you know, actually pop into print. But one of the things they've been talking about for weeks is that DeSantis is running out of money and that he, he may not even make the starting gate. He may be out of the race by the end of the year. And Lo and behold, you are starting to see uh, you are starting to see stories about that. I, I, I just there's no way to tell. But the, the only signpost we're going to get is when the financial reports come out next October. The rumor is that uh, it, it will show that he is continuing. He's starting to struggle to raise money and he may have to wind up laying off more people. And that's going to create another cycle of bad publicity for his presidential campaign. Right. So uh, one issue that uh, is certainly dominates the presidential politics is the issue of abortion. Uh, and it's uh, at being debated, of course, at the national level, at the state level, and at the state level. I was struck this week by an ad that Kentucky Governor Bashirs, who is running for re-election, ran against his potential opponent, opponent, Republican opponent, who is anti-abortion, no exceptions allowed, it's a pretty hard-hitting ad. Here it is. I was raped by my stepfather after years of sexual abuse. I was 12. Anyone who believes there should be no exceptions for rape and incest could never understand what it's like to stand in my shoes. This is to you, Daniel Cameron. To tell a 12-year-old girl she must have the baby of her stepfather who raped her is unthinkable. Whoa. Um, John Bennett? Hard to respond to that one. Wow. Yeah, uh, that's that's about as powerful an ad uh, as you can produce. And, um, you know, this is, you know, we're seeing some fissures within the Republican candidates and uh, Trump's uh, uh, Trump's opponents jumping on his comments from uh, his his very long uh, <laughs> interview with uh, Kristen Welker on uh, her first uh her first Sunday uh, moderating Meet the Press. And, you know, Trump has um, has wandered off the reservation, so to speak, on abortion. Um, you know, he's not he's not the, the staunch pro-life uh, politician that that a lot of uh, Republicans are these days. And I don't think it it's really hurts him in the primary. I mean, the polls speak for themselves, but um, it does it does show that. Um, that he's, you know, he's not a traditional conservative. Um, and I think that frustrates a lot of people. Uh, it certainly frustrates some members um, that I overheard this week talking about this uh, uh, in Congress. Uh, but again, you know, he's up by 50 points and it, it does look like a one uh, one man race right now. 
Right. Uh, so, Sadiq, Donald Trump uh, is kind of, in a sense, maybe trying to have it both ways on this issue. Here's a little clip of Donald Trump this week, basically saying, look, I gave you Roe versus Wade, right? Now it's time to maybe cool your jets a little bit. Here's Trump. Last year, I was able to do something that nobody thought was possible. We ended Roe v. Wade. You just think about that. Because people have to get elected. We have to get elected. Hmm. <laughs> that we have to get elected <laughs> is a pretty loaded statement following the first one, Sadiq. I, I think uh, the former president is recognizing that uh, the last three elections have come down to the Trump factor and he's lost them. And his party has has uh, really struggled on this front. And uh, I think it was it was the president himself who told the the, the Family Research Council um, in probably the last week or so. Uh, politically, it's very tough. This was an issue in the midterms, and so he recognizes how obviously salient this point is. And it's also notable that there's been reporting in the last week that. Uh, Mike Donilon, a senior White House advisor, has been going around telling Democrats that the way Biden is going to win is uh, talking about Donald Trump and talking about abortion. He's not really talking about either one of those right now. He's trying to talk about the economy and Bidenomics and all sorts of other things. But this is really what uh, the the Democrats are preparing 2024 to be ba- to be around. And that ad that we heard in Kentucky, we're going to see those all over the place because there will be a track record of these really remarkably sad stories of what's happening to to uh, to women and girls across the country. Yeah, David, um, do you see this issue? Uh, and are there signs that this issue, which Republicans recognized as a huge victory for them, may end up? <laughs> Um, they may, they may end up regretting it. At least, uh, well, at least if they continue right to push this issue uh, uh, beyond Roe v. Wade. Yeah, I think we're already seeing signs of it. There's a lot of concern, and I, I agree with Sudeep. And I, I just want to add, you know, uh, after the tw- the tw- 2022 elections, a lot of people blame Trump for the Republican reversals. And of course, Trump in defending himself said, no, it wasn't me. It was the abortion issue. So mm-hmm. in, in pushing these out, Trump is kind of basically trying to defend himself against his own conduct during the 2022 midterms. So that's a, that's a part of this, too. But uh, I, on the other hand, I think he's right. I think it is a the issue is a threat to uh, the Republican Party, and it's just something they're going to have to address. And I think his his approach, frankly, is a sound one for the for the general election. I suspect we'll hear more of it. Another thing that's going on since Trump started talking about it is you're hearing quietly, but you're hearing a lot of the uh, anti-abortion groups talk about the fact that they do support some exceptions in their they're, they're not as hard line as they have been in previous months. And I think you'll hear more and more of that. I think you'll you'll hear more of these organizations and these candidates agree that there should be exceptions. Okay. Now there's nothing the media love to talk about more than the media themselves. <laughs> so I have to ask you uh, before we break here, Rupert Murdoch stepping down. Oh my God, it's getting headlines all over the place on the front page of all the papers this morning and on the cable news. Um, John Bennett, does it make any real difference in the real world? It it is, it is the end of an era. Let's face it. But sure, it's it's definitely an end of an era, and you know there will be more books written about uh, Mr. Murdoch's uh, 
the empire that he's built there. But I don't think much will change uh, at Fox News or and, and simply because their approach makes the Murdoch family a ton of money. So, you know, if it if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah. What do you think, Sadiq? Uh, any real impact or life goes on and Fox News goes on without Rupert? Well, I, th- I think we there is a, a, a potential here that obviously Rupert Murdoch seeded this uh, this media uh, phenomenon of of uh, right wing television and and creating all these the, just a true spectacle of what's happening. But um, the the post Rupert Murdoch era does create openings for the the stations that are further to the right and for the greater mm-hmm. uh, oh, uh, extremist yeah. uh, politics to take hold here and. Uh, that is the legacy of, of Rupert Murdoch is what he's now generated with that. Some of it would have taken hold regardless, but a lot of it was uh, people trying to be the next Rupert Murdoch. And and David, I guess one of the people who's really glad to see Rupert Murdoch go is Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, he's been talking with Rupert for years about the secession yeah. plan at uh, Fox. So it, but um, they sort of fell out toward the in the last. They did, months. but you know, uh, I, I think Rupert was at the famous dinner just a couple of months ago where they tried to talk him into going to the Milwaukee debate, and the subject of the succession mm. again, again came up because apparently Trump was worried that James Murdoch was somehow mm-hmm. going to mm. assume control of the network, and he's more liberal, and it's going to you're going to going to screw up your network. And Rupert assured him that Lachlan was going to be the heir apparent. So. Uh, yeah, it won't, it won't change the it won't affect the, the lives of people at large, but it will affect conservative politics. And it's going to be interesting to watch. Yep. The king is dead. Long live the king. Yes. <laughs> OK, right. Hey, great. Great job, panel. Thank you so much. Sudeep Reddy, John Bennett and David Jackson. David Jackson, USA Today. Sudeep, of course, Politico. John Bennett. CQ roll call. Um, I happened to see my uh, good brother, uh, Patrick, this week who told me that the favorite part of the roundtable for him every week is the favorite story of the week at the end of the show. So uh, not to put any pressure on you guys, but I just want you to know this is when uh, everybody is looking forward to. Of all the stories you covered this week, of all the things you were tracking, what's the one thing that stopped you in your tracks, um, your favorite story of the week? How about it, Sudeep? Could you start us off, please? You know, I know everybody was paying very close attention <laughs> to the aftermath, the second wave of the Lauren Bobert stories oh, uh, yes. about what happened uh, <laughs> when she was ejected from a family-friendly theater showing of Beetlejuice uh, when she was asked to stop yep. vaping, taking pictures, and groping uh, uh-huh. her date uh, during this, uh, during this uh, event. Her date, by the way, was... Uh, a Democrat supporting owner of a bar that hosts drag events. Uh, so there are layers of hypocrisy in this story. Um, I believe we had three versions of apologies by the time the week is out. John Fetterman uh, jumped on this and used this to defend his dress, his dress as well. Uh, but but some of my favorite comments about Lo- Lo- Lauren uh, Boebert uh, when Jenna Ellis is calling. Uh, the congresswoman, <laughs> embarrassing and disrespectful. You know you're in trouble. And when Ann Coulter is calling you a totally embarrassing bimbo, uh, you know, friends like these, um, it's it's just remarkable how, uh, how rich this story has been for all of us. Plus, uh, and I look for, forward to the theater performance of it sometime. <laughs> Plus, Bobert d- dropped her boyfriend, right? Because she said she did. She did. A, because he's a Democrat. Uh, she's been <laughs> exposed. 
so to speak. <laughs> yeah, he, yeah, he was too, uh, so to speak, in the theater, almost at least. Okay, uh, glad you mentioned that. I got a laugh out of that too. How about you, John Bennett? Um, you usually go in the sports field, but wherever you want to go, your favorite story. Yeah, we'll keep the sports streak alive, uh, and we'll go to Boulder, Colorado. I'm Uh-oh. enjoying what. Uh, Deion Sanders, a.k.a. Coach Prime, is doing uh, with the University of Colorado Buffalo football team. And I was uh, very impressed this week uh, with uh, with Coach Prime defending um, a Colorado State player, um, uh, Henry Blackburn, who had a questionable hit uh, late in the game, uh, late, late, late on the East Coast last Saturday night, a rivalry game with Colorado State. Um, and he, he hit... Um, Probably Colorado's best player, Travis Hunter, along the sideline. Hunter was uh, was running a pass route, and uh, the safety Blackburn came screaming across the field and hit him in his kind of in his torso and around his stomach. Mm-hmm. Um, Hunter suffered a lacerated liver and a couple other injuries. He's going to be out for a while, but anyway, um, unfortunately, Mr. Blackburn was getting death threats, and uh, Coach Prime at one at his weekly press conference uh, told his fan base to cut it out and it's just a game. And Mr. Blackburn is just a young man who uh, made a mistake with a questionable hit. And I just thought that was very classy from coach prime. Yeah. Good. Good for him. Um, and John, good for you. That's certainly uh, a sports event. I never would have known about without <laughs> <laughs> that listening to the, uh, the, the reporters round table on the bill press pod and David Jackson, what caught your attention? Well, uh, I was going to talk about, uh, Rupert Murdoch, and then oh. I was going to talk about Deion Sanders. But I oh. tell you what, I'll tell you what I'll do. It's my this is always the hardest segment for me, Bill. My favorite story of the week because you have too many. So depressing. But uh, you you all will be glad to know that USA Today, the nation's newspaper, along with our oh. Nashville newspaper, is hiring a reporter to cover Taylor Swift. Oh yes. Uh, now we and we're also going to cover hire a reporter to cover Beyonce. Now we've been yes. taking a lot of heat about this, but I think it's actually a very good move. I think cultural reporting. Is is a is a, a path forward for us to explain to people what's happening in, in terms of, uh, you know, of, of the social world and the entertainment world because because it plays such a big big role in what happens in this country. So, um, I just I, I just want to go on record as saying I think it's a really good idea that we're hiring a Taylor Swift reporter. And if you guys ever want a reference, just let me know. <laughs> <laughs> that was a big story, and I meant to cover it last week, and we never got around to it. Uh, <laughs> David, are you going to hire anybody to cover Willie Nelson? Uh, that's a good question. <laughs> Although, um, yeah, no, actually, yeah, we, um, we we used to have a reporter who more or less covered Bob Dylan. I mean, this is I'm going way back here, so yeah, it's not yeah. particularly unusual. Um, we covered LeBron James back when he was a f- right. first a free agent. That we had a LeBron James reporter, so it's not totally unprecedented. And, and frankly, I think it's a good idea. All right. There you go. Well, um, I want to, first of all, thank Politico for my favorite story of the week. Uh, And this has to do with uh, the latest from James Comer, head of the House Oversight Committee, who is source in charge of the investigation into Hunter Biden. Remember, Kevin McCarthy said we have to start the uh, impeachment inquiry because we may not have any evidence yet. But if we start an inquiry, we're going to find some evidence somehow. And uh, then we'll know what we're going to impeach Joe Biden for. One of the things they were looking for were um, some unredacted emails. They'd seen redacted emails from the National Archives about Joe Biden's time that he spent in Ukraine. But this week, yesterday, 
James Comer got to see the unredacted emails. He said when he saw these emails ahead of time, he had said, when Democrats see these unredacted emails, they are going to hit the panic button. That's how much evidence is going to be there. Well, (laughs) it didn't turn out quite that way. Um, There was zero evidence on any of these unredacted emails that Joe Biden ever got a dime uh, from any of Hunter Biden's uh, business activities in Ukraine. But not only that, there were some surprises. Uh, One email showed that Joe Biden one day actually worked out with his personal trainer and had dinner with two granddaughters. Oh, my God impeachable offense. Um, Another email showed the the Ukraine ambassador praising a speech that Bo Biden, who was then the attorney general from Delaware, had made in Ukraine as being a very important speech. Oh my God, nothing impeachable there. And then the most surprising maybe that (laughs) a side of Biden we've never seen before, Joe Biden, the vice president, went to Georgia in Tbilisi, the capital of Georgia, and gave a speech there, after which apparently the women of Georgia went crazy over Joe Biden. There was a headline in the Georgia paper that said, Biden, the new Georgian sex symbol. (laughs) So (laughs) little did we know that Joe Biden was a big, um, you know, uh, rated as the big sexy uh, celebrity uh, in the country of Georgia, uh, a side of Biden we hadn't seen before. But it just kind of proves, I think, that the more digging they do, the less evidence they're going to find. And maybe they ought to just give up this whole impeachment thing. It didn't work out so well for them yesterday. Uh, And that's it from every side for today's roundtable. A big thank you again to John Bennett from CQ Roll Call, editor-at-large, to Deep Ready, managing editor Politico, David Jackson, national political correspondent for USA Today, And a big thanks to all of you for joining us for today's roundtable. Have a great weekend, friends. And then we'll be back on Tuesday talking with Congresswoman Zoe Loughran from California, one of the real chargers on the House Judiciary Committee. And, of course, we'll be talking to her about the whole Biden impeachment circus and the Hunter Biden circus and the ham-handed efforts by Jim Jordan and James Comer to come up with any evidence at all. That's on Tuesday. We'll see you then with Zoe Lofgren for the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.